Welcome all to this episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages podcast. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Kirsty Francis, a UCLA medievalist joining Boston University's Society of Fellows this fall. My research interests include magic, sexuality, and all things medievalism. Thank you, Kirsty. I am Misho Ishikawa, today's co-host alongside Kirsty. I am also a UCLA medievalist, and I will be joining New York University as an assistant professor this fall. My work primarily focuses on the Mongol Yuan dynasty in China, um, and I'm particularly interested in how the senses appear as world-building mechanisms for Mongol imperialism across European and Chinese sources. Today's conversation is going to be a little bit of a, a mishmash of our different interests. So we're, we're really going to be tackling the topics of medievalism. We're talking about medievalism and race. And we're talking about medievalism, race, and representation in the epic fantasy series, The Lord of the Rings, particularly in light of the new season of Rings of Power. Our guest today joining us is Dr. Chris Chisholm, professor of English at UCLA and, incidentally, someone who's taught us quite a bit about medievalism. Chris Chisholm teaches a long-running and very popular undergraduate seminar on medievalisms, where students tackle the Lord of the Rings book trilogy alongside medieval texts that inspired it, as well as more recent cultural medievalisms. For instance, when Misho and I spent a quarter TAing for this class, we lectured on subjects ranging from the gendered cinematography of Game of Thrones to the medievalism and orientalism of Harry Potter. And as with that class, today's episode is going to really be tackling a central question. How does our use of medieval reflect our current cultural moment? Are shifting definitions of what's counted as the Middle Ages mirrored in the public media we consume? And how does fantasy allow us to imagine new possibilities for racially diverse and globally interconnected quasi-medieval worlds? Lord of the Rings gives us a really interesting lens to consider these questions through. At once completely imaginary, yet the product of a professional medievalist, the world of Lord of the Rings is shaped by a particular vision of the historical past, a kind of default white Middle Ages, wherein cultural contact with outsiders is a threat rather than the norm. The Lord of the Rings screen adaptations, as well as those of The Hobbit, embrace this homogenous view. Though there are a bunch of different races in Middle-earth, the story centers in each on a multi-member fellowship made up of dwarves, hobbits, and others, and yet everyone on these fellowships is still white. The Return of the King drives us home in the final film when it depicts Sauron's advancing army as a multi-ethnic alliance of men from the South, and they're marked by Orientalist Oliphants, their garb, and by multiracial casting. This is the first obvious time in the film series that there are actors of color who are hired to play villains. It's not a great look for Peter Jackson. Um, this is not even touching on the anti-Semitism of the dwarves or the racialized blackness of the orcs in Lord of the Rings. And as we mentioned just a little bit earlier, we are going to be talking about Rings of Power today. So that's the new series that's hosted by Amazon, I think, Studios. And, and it take, it's, it's set in the Lord of the Rings world, but it's a little bit of an interesting kind of entry into the Lord of the Rings universe because it is at once absolutely sort of, um, I would say, kind of playing to fans. This is a really high budget show. It's incredibly expensive, and it's clearly being positioned by Amazon as one of its sort of standout sort of touch points for its streaming platform. So at the same time, um, it is trying to reimagine or at least attempt to address some of the criticisms about Peter Jackson's other representations of the Lord of the Rings universe and do so by diversifying its cast a little bit more. Prince Durin's wife, the dwarven princess Disa, is portrayed by a black British actress, Sophia Nombede, and the show introduces a new character, unattested to the Silmarillion, the sylvan elf Arondir, portrayed by the black Puerto Rican actor, Ismael Cruz Cordova. 
This has led to, unfortunately, an online outpouring of racism couched in textual analysis and respecting the history of the source material, often citing the whiteness of the medieval past, or at least the imagined whiteness of the medieval past, as support for Middle Earth as a white world, ignoring, I guess, the fact that elves, dwarves, and angelic wizards aren't actually found in the Middle Ages, and that this show is still mostly a show about white people. Yeah, I do not recommend Googling, you know, like, why are there people of color in rings of power? Oh, yeah. Because the Quora answers are gross. We'll link in the episode description to some of the kind of media coverage of rings of power. Um, but it really seems like the media narrative surrounding the show kind of boiled down to diversity and fantasy. Too much or a good thing? As a fan of The Lord of the Rings, I did appreciate the Amazon series for attempting to fix what I always found kind of jarring about the film adaptations. The Middle Earth of Rings of Power reflected more of the world as I know it, as well as the reality of the Middle Ages as a period of global interconnected trade, cultural exchange, and conquest. Yet, at the end of the day, this series is, like you mentioned, Misho, a calculated effort by one of the largest corporations in the world to ultimately make more money. Did they add characters of color simply as a marketing acknowledgement of the shift in the media landscape between 2003 and 2023? And overall, how much do these efforts as diversifying the source material even matter? When I was watching the pilot, I kept wondering, why do we need this series? This is basically the exact same story as the Lord of the Rings trilogy. We have Galadriel as hero, we have Sauron as the villain, we've got the rings. It's really very familiar, and, and perhaps that's the point. Um, but th there's so much else in the Silmarillion, so, so why are we retelling this particular story? We're excited to get some answers to these questions and more by talking with Dr. Chris Chisholm. Dr. Chris Chisholm is the author of Alliterative Revivals and is professor of English at UCLA. Between 2003 and 2005, she was the recipient of a New Directions Mellon Fellowship to learn Arabic and study Islamic culture. Since completing her first book on late medieval alliterative romance, she's been working on several book projects. The first, Mortal Friends, The Politics of Friendship in Medieval England, explores the social force of friendship as it is tested in the range of late medieval texts. The second book project, Strange Knowledge, Translation and Cultural Transmission in the Arabic and English Middle Ages, illuminates the complex, interdependent processes by which both medieval Islamic and medieval Christian writers come to remake their visions of the world. She's also a huge fan of Lord of the Rings. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great honor to be here and uh, part of this conversation that you're creating. Oh, we're so excited. You know, we've talked, the three of us outside of this formal space, about Lord of the Rings and our various, you know, thoughts and theories about it. But maybe you could kick off our conversation today by telling us a bit of how you first fell in love with Lord of the Rings and why you think it matters for us as medievalists and fantasy fans today. Okay, I became a medievalist probably because of Lord of the Rings, along with a bunch of other f fantasy and texts that were sort of geared as child-friendly at the beginning and then child-tolerant as, as time went on. I read it just after my family moved to Saudi Arabia. So basically that was a pretty big disruption in my life and I lost my friends and I lost my school and I lost the wet damp climate of the Pacific Northwest, which is kind of like that of the Shire. And I gained a very strange world with new friends and new relationships and a new kind of sense of range of identities that I could be in. I think Lord of the Rings really helped me ease that transition. I started with Narnia when I was eight and went on to The Hobbit when I was nine. School librarian gave me that book and it was one of the best gifts I'd ever gotten. I still have it. But I couldn't start The Lord of the Rings because it starts out as social satire and I hated Thackeray. 
and I never got past the sort of silly party stuff in Hobbiton. It just went on a little bit too long. But after we moved to Saudi Arabia, I took it out again, and I started reading it mostly at night with a flashlight, which wasn't comfortable because the minute the Black Riders showed up, I was terrified. I would literally read between, oh, I don't know, three and five in the morning. And then when the sun began to come up, I would take the book out of my bedroom and go downstairs and hide it in the family laundry basket because only the family dirty clothes could actually quell the Black Riders and their evil influence. I was highly impressionable. So uh, I, be, I was obsessed with it for two years, and I've never quite gotten over that obsession. But being, a, being trained as a medievalist, one is told that that is kind of not a good thing to confess to. And in fact, I've kind of got a theory that either you're a Tolkien fan that came to medievalist sort of through fantasy literature, and I've got colleagues who are coming to it through, say, Susan Cooper. Other people were attracted through uh, T.H. White. In other words, um, versions of medieval texts that they could read at an earlier age than they could read actual medieval texts in. And uh, so there's a bunch of us that are like this. We're just sort of closet fantasy fiends. And, uh, you know, uh, coming out about Tolkien uh, was a very fun moment in the late 90s and the early aughts. There's the other kind that really came to medievalism as a serious historical uh, kind of enterprise in its own right, and they have the paleographic and Latinate training that, frankly, I don't have. Um, and uh, they don't get Tolkien. My favorite advisor and the kindest person in the universe to me as a scholar was Larry Scanlon. And he basically saw Lord of the Rings as this kind of self-indulgent, nostalgic fantasy of the British Empire. And I got that. I really did understand that. I saw the classism that was in it. I could see um, the sort of noblesse oblige lost. What a, what a terrifying tragedy. So um, I got that point of view, but it's never ceased to amaze, you know, when I go to conferences, are, are you one of us? Are you not one of us? Mm -hmm. um, and that all has been complicated by the fact that it's been increasingly recognized that Tolkien and us are products and determined largely within a very, very, very white supremacist history. Well, that leads us really beautifully to our next question. I was just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how race and ethnicity works in Lord of the Rings. When you teach these books, what do you emphasize to your students? That's a great question. I think what has appealed to me most recently in my approaches to it is the sense that it is a war novel. It is the product of colonization and apartheid. Tolkien was literally born in South Africa. He spent his life decrying a lot of these systems, but he spent a lot of his writings kind of reflecting a lot of the systems. It's recently come out that he rejected Stuart Hall uh, as a candidate, a PhD candidate in medieval at Oxford. He did some damage, uh, institutionally speaking, to any kind of social justice. But he also kind of grew and changed. And so seeing The Lord of the Rings as a dynamic process, as uh, traumatized, as something that have absorbed trauma and have tried to define ways of getting out from and making new social ties across racial lines, across religious lines, across species lines, across flora and fauna lines. Um, 
across any kind of lines of difference, except for orcs, the orcs are where the buck stops, has been something that I wanted to emphasize. But I think the war, the sort of post-war nature of the Lord of the Rings uh, really marks it for me and puts it next to a bunch of other 20th century books. Tom Shippey actually discusses these in his really fabulous uh, The Road to Middle Earth. And uh, I would add to his list. So T.H. White was uh, also traumatized by World War II. Tolkien was traumatized by World War I. You could see Susan Cooper, who wrote a very little read uh, children's fantasy called Dawn of Fear, um, as very traumatized and marked by sort of the world-shaking, world-transforming force of these world wars in the beginning and middle of the 20th century. And then finally, surprise, Watership Down, which came out in the 70s, um, is all about rabbits as a soldier organization, a kind of army organization that's using its social organization. They have a rabbit police, the Ephrath and Ausla, but every Warren has an Ausla. All of this kind of mark these texts as just absorbing the organ, the social organization created by war and the intense relationships that are within war. So I do see it as part of colonialism, but I do very much see it as part of global warfare. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And I'm just wondering a little bit about what happens then when Tolkien is adapted for film or for television. Right? And, and I'm kind of working off of the idea that any time war is depicted on screen, it sort of glamorizes war at the same time. And I, I think a lot of the criticisms about Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy is about how the war is really used to kind of divide people by very clear racial groups, right? The, the orcs as being racialized um, is, is kind of predominantly obvious in, in the Lord of the Rings movies. So I'm just wondering if you could maybe speak to, either you or Kirsty could speak to that a little bit about what, what do you think happens when, when it is portrayed on screen? Is Tolkien sort of trauma of war lost or, or is it being kind of transmuted into a kind of nostalgia for war? That is a wonderful question, and that gets very much at the genre of epic. And I do tend to see a lot of these things as bounded by genres. Um, and, you know, face it, uh, American audiences love these big epic moments in 300. Um, this is Sparta! You know, the act of finally just booting the threatening black guy who comes from Persia down a well. Um, is a high point of that and has become meme-worthy. Um, and so our culture kind of loves that gesture of forceful uh, disavowal, to put it kindly. Obliteration, genocide, to put it less kindly. Um, and it works cinematographically because it's hard. It's harder to exist, I think, in a complex world where you realize that you are not any one thing. Western culture has never been just Western. It's always been perforated. It's a historical phenomena. It is not a stable entity. It came into being through force and violence, and it continues to exist through force and violence. But the terms of the violence and the people who are receiving that Spartan kick are continually changing. It's just like almost a role-playing game, a really sick one, but one that scripts itself very beautifully in terms of forms of nationalism. So if you believe in a nationalist outset, that's an, that's an epic 
kind of gesture that's really, really going to sell and really going to appeal to you. And I think that's why we're getting, I mean, other than Tolkien is a dead author and J.K. Rowling is a living author, I think that's why we're getting sort of continued um, re-envisionings and revisitations uh, by the Tolkien estate or allowed by the Tolkien estate to uh, uh, these, these particular stories. And the second age is really, really epic. Um, the first age is even more epic. Just for context, can you um, tell our listeners, the second age refers to... The um, second age is where Rings of Power takes place. And this is where my stupid fan-like <laughs> uh, devouring of the entire, what is it, 15-volume prehistory of Middle-earth and all of Tolkien's drafts sort of um, makes me assume that people know too much. So the second age is after the world was reshaped and the Silmarils were kind of taken out of the world and the big wars of the elves with the outer enemy Morgoth ended. And so we're into the second age where as one of my favorite YouTube bloggers, Verily Bitchy, calls it, um, where where Morgoth's squeeze, Sauron, um, is the main big bad. And the things that happen in the, in the Second Age, along with, what, 3,000 years of Middle-earthian history, are that the rings of power get recreated. Sauron kind of becomes the disembodied Dark Lord Eye, but starts out as a kind of very seductive guy who can make people listen to him. And uh, he helps engineer the corruption of the Elven Rings and the fall of Numenor. Cool. And that ends up being the plot of, spoiler alert, kind of that, that's a story that we're starting to get in Rings of Power. And I think that, you know, what you were just talking about, Chris, you were talking about kind of this, this long prehistory. So if, if you guys are maybe just fans of the movies or if you are not familiar with Lord of the Rings at all. So in addition to, you know, you have The Hobbit, which was written more for... A, a younger audience, and you have the Lord of the Rings, which consists of the Fellowship of the Rings, the Two Towers, the Return of the King. Then you also have this Legendarium, the Silmarillion, which is kind of the pre, it's telling the history of everything that kind of leads up to Lord of the Rings. It also creates kind of a mythological history of basically the creation of Middle Earth and all of the kind of divine beings that have populated it. So when we're talking about these large fantasy epics, you know, one thing that I keep coming back to, right, is the kind of question that Misha brought up, you know, is like, okay, but what do we do with the orcs? Because I totally buy that this is, you know, about war trauma. And I see that, you know, I can, if I'm like being a generous person to Tolkien, I'm like, okay, I can see how the orcs are meant to embody the horrors of war by being kind of a, you know, they're non-human creations. That like, how can you fight against something that's so unnatural, et cetera? Um, but it seems also like it's a similar move of dehumanization that happens in texts like medieval romances when we talk about quote-unquote Saracens, right? And we paint with this large brush as kind of like scary figure. So it's like instead of talking about the nuances of the enemy or whatever, we're really just going to kind of homogenize them and, and with regards to the orcs, right, in a way that's like, you look at them, they all look the same. They all have black skin. And that's what marks them as separate from the fair-skinned people of um, of kind of the larger world. And when we're talking about the fan backlash to Rings of Power recently, a lot of times that backlash is based upon folks drawing from like a historical text or a, a authoritative text like the Silmarillion to say, well, the text says this. So we can't have this version of elves or this version of dwarves or whatever. Um, 
weirdly, when I first encountered the elves of Lord of the Rings, it was in an illustrated Hobbit from, like, the 60s before the any of the animations had come up. So Elrond in that version was a, like, really small, wizened green man wearing, like, all leaves and nothing else. And so when I was shocked, like, to see Hugo weaving in Fellowship of the Rings when I watched it for the first time, because I was like, wait, in my mind, you know, Elrond is this tiny little green elf. Um, and so because so many of these debates seem to hinge on fidelity to some master source. How do you think Chris' fantasy complicates this? I mean, Lord of the Rings is a work of fantasy, but it is also the work of a kind of a carefully historicized medievalism. So how do we grapple with kind of that dissonance between fantasy as a imagined space and how it deals with like the very real politics of the moment? Again, really great question. So what I like about fantasy is it's sort of like medieval allegory. In medieval allegory, you can basically say it was all a dream, but look at a wacko psychological, psychoanalytic, projective things that can happen in this dream. We can bring together a beloved object with her sense of resistance to you and make them two different characters, as happens in um, the Roman de la Rose. We can basically have a colloquy with our much-mourned dead child, as happens in Pearl. Um, There's just, the sky's the limit in terms of what you can bring together to speak to each other. And Piers Plowman, with its never-ending conversation, is a great instance of this. So fantasy isn't quite as open-ended as medieval allegory because it also, like allegory, has many different types and schemas, but it's been ossified into particular expectations by the publishing industry and capitalism. So fantasy is many things. It can be the genre fiction, it can be the section of the bookstore that you used to be able to physically walk into, or the tag that you put on when you're searching for books online. But either way, it kind of suggests that it's a made-up world, and to some extent, there's a little bit of free play with how it signifies. And you can have very by-rote fantasies and very formulaic fantasies, and you can have very speculative, thought-experimental fantasies. So I think when Tolkien first envisioned race in The Lord of the Rings, he wasn't thinking about race, he was thinking of species, and he was using fan- uh, the, the kind of fantasy genre or medieval allegory genre. He kept on saying he hated allegory. He was incessantly influenced by less formulaic forms of medieval allegory. There's nothing he wrote that isn't in some sense an allegory. And if you haven't read Smith of Wooden Major, you haven't seen him really doing this, where he gets allegorical about his own work and his own life, or uh, Leaf by Niggle. I mean, there's just nothing he did that is a short story that isn't in some way um, allegorical. And if you think about his obsession with creativity, fantasy can get meta about creativity. You can think hard about sort of different creative modes. You can racialize them. So the dwarves in Tolkien, yes, they're absolutely drawing on anti-Semitic stereotypes uh, that he got from Wagner, that he got from German legends, whatever, uh, that he got from the Nibelungen lead. But yeah, and he started out pretty much in key with those with those particular legends. He hadn't thought hard about them. But to him, I think, creatively, dwarves were about creating life from inert matter, putting your 
putting your life into things. So that's why dwarves love crafting things and make them live. That's why they can why they can take inert caves and make living galleries out of them. Kind of like the Entish forests, whole kingdoms to wander in. That's why they were made out of clay, Frankenstein-like and Aule, one of the big angelic um, Valar presences in the creation story for Middle-earth and the Silmarillion, breathes life into them illicitly and then he's granted a side, okay, I'll let your artistic creations go by the head high, all-father God, um, the ultimate creator who really kind of stays outside things. Um, Elves, I think, Tolkien was thinking about the immortality of art itself, how beauty survives, how it doesn't seem to change. So he made a race that was obsessed with that unchanging beauty, but non-adaptiveness. I mean, the elves in Tolkien are, in fact, also a class, nostalgic, passing of the noble, noble classes fantasy, but they are also thinking hard about the immortality of art. So you've got these politics and these aesthetics holding hand in hand in most of the thought experiment that you get in The Lord of the Rings. I don't think you get the same thoughtfulness in the Peter Jackson movies, much as I love it. Um, if you go back to Tolkien's looks, there aren't, in fact, all black orcs. There's the white orcs of the Misty Mountains and the black orcs of Mordor. If you look at hobbits, there's the pale, or pale what are they? I forget what they are. The pharaohides or fallowhides. And then there's the dark-skinned harfoots. Um, when I was teaching Tolkien to a class of uh, UCLA students, uh, one of them came up and did this whole paper on the mixed-race portions of Hobbiton and how Peter Jackson had basically betrayed that because he didn't portray the same diversity in the books, in the film. And it's the film that seems to have set the keynote for um, Rings of Power. I had a lot of thoughts as you were talking, Chris. The thing that sort of came to mind first about fantasy as a genre, at least I think in the Anglophone tradition, what I find really fascinating about fantasy is the way that it suspends a kind of teleological narrative about Western history. That, like There is no moment of modernity on the horizon in fantasy. And I think oftentimes magic sort of takes the place of technology. There is no need for an industrial revolution when you have magic to kind of fill in those gaps. And, and I find that really interesting in terms of denaturalizing what has been naturalized through a kind of theological understanding of Western history, that, that this is all sort of a, a movement or a push toward progress. I think the, the promise of fantasy is divorcing ideologies like that from our understandings of the world and our understandings of our relationship with history and, and in our own current moment. So I think that is exciting about fantasy. I think there is a kind of echo of that in allegory too, medieval allegory, and thinking sort of of like the suspended time of encountering the Pearl Maiden mm -hmm. in a poem like Pearl, or the suspended time at the end of every man where there's this kind of moment of thought and, and of kind of processing, but it's, it's outside of human temporality. Um, and, and I think that is generative, potentially generative, yeah. but it could also be used regressively <laughs> at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, so that is kind of like the, the promise and then also often I think the pitfall of fantasy genre. Because I could see both of those at play in Lord of the Rings, because on the one hand, Lord of the Rings, thinking here of the book series, um, it's kind of pessimistic, right? Like you see the Industrial Revolution basically through Saruman and Sauron's forces, and it's like, oh, this is really bad. And so as, as Chris has kind of 
said many times, it really does read as a nostalgia for a time when the nobility was in charge, aka elves, the age of elves, right, is, is what they call it in the um, series. And then at the conclusion of the series, it transitions to the age of man, right? It's kind of a time of the elves ended, elves get out of Middle Earth, they're all sailing towards the Grey Havens, etc. And so I've always been ambivalent on if we're supposed to see that shift, this kind of as Chris was saying, a species shift from elves to humans as in control. Are we supposed to see that as positive? You know, is that supposed to be like a hopeful future? Or is that a future where it's like the best days of Middle-earth are behind it because the elves and the magic people are gone and now we're left with men in charge and their fallibility that we've seen a bajillion times. But also, Aragorn is a really good dude, so we're supposed to be excited that he's king. Just this question of temporality that I think you bring up is a really good one in this kind of how are we thinking about how these fantasies exist within a larger history or not? And uh, that connects to one of your other questions uh, that you pre-circulated to me, which is why prequels, why prequels now? Because uh, one of the things I hate about prequels is they seem to aim at a predestined future. I don't know if any of you have read The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, uh, which is the prequel to The Hunger Games. Mm -hmm. Have you started it? No. But I, it's on my to-read list, but that is as close as I've gotten. <laughs> okay. So I started it, and I did not want to continue it because basically it's, it's President Snow as a kid. And you see how he becomes the tyrannical, I don't even have a word for what he becomes, mm -hmm. uh, the tyrannical... Despot. Despot, self-warped. Anyways, yeah. He wants to keep his world the way it is, and we see how, as a boy, he's inculcated in that mindset. And reading it is like very much like um, talk, feeling the jaws of a bear trap kind of close around you in slow motion. And I just talked to one of our recent um, recruits at UCLA, uh, Madeline Werner, who did a term paper on this as an undergraduate, and she finds all kinds of like glimmers of hope the future is not written in, in that book. I need to go back now and read it for those glimmers. I think you can do prequels in a way that doesn't sort of pre-exhaust or uh, take up all those beautiful gaps that help readers to want to participate. If something online or uh, in media or in a book looks like it's not complete, that things are mis missing, then Fan fiction. I mean, that's a place for readers to really kind of take power and find their own ways of connecting the dots that are created across those gaps and fill in the blanks. And I think that's the impulse to do prequels, but there's ways of doing it speculatively that open out futures, even for the main franchise, and there's ways of doing it that just deplete everything. I think that's one reason why in Star Wars... That's what I was going to say. Go, go, go. go, go. Oh, I was going to say, I think exactly what you said, the depletion versus kind of the, the, genera the generation. I, I was trying to think, you know, what prequels are successful, right? I mean, Star Wars prequels come to mind as both, yeah, they made a lot of money, and I mean, as a teen growing up with the prequels, I have a special place in my heart for them, you know, but they also... People were disgusted with them because, like what you were saying, Chris, they foreclosed a lot of the 
imaginative possibilities that were hinted at in the original Star Wars trilogy, right? Like you introduce midi-chlorians and suddenly it's like, oh wait, this kind of like fantastic thing about the Jedi has now been turned into like a medical diagnosis type of thing. Or, you know, oh, what were the Clone Wars? Well, turns out they're based on a trade battle, so let's get into the politics of trade, right? Or yeah. it's all about Darth Vader. Darth fucking Vader. No, it's not about Darth Vader. It's about all kinds of people. Exactly. So kind of the promise or not of a prequel. And so I'm thinking another very popular kind of prequel request, I think. So we talked about She Who Must Not Be Named, J.K. Rowling. You know, there's been a big fan request, especially before the last five years, for a sort of a prequel of the Harry Potter series, something that would look at like the Harry Potter dad's time, the Marauder's time. And Chris, you mentioned fan fiction. I mean, that's where there's been a lot of great fan fiction writing. And there seems to be this space where if it's a fan generated type of prequel that still maintains the possibility for new directions because it's not canon, quote unquote, but it also still kind of scratches that itch for what was going on that maybe turning something into a officially licensed piece adds a different it adds that quite that question that we were talking about about like accuracy to a text but it also having more notes from a text can also <laughs> close down your imagination i guess well I, I do think that's so interesting because my view on prequels is a lot more cynical i just kind of am I'm thinking that a lot of it is just about existing IP and the kind of demands of streaming at this point because we've gotten now what Rings of Power, the Game of Thrones prequels. There's a, a lot of interest in sort of continuing successful franchises. My question is, though, why go back in time as opposed to going forward, adjacent in time? Why, why this move backward? And I think it's really interesting that you bring up the, the fan fiction element and that fans also tend to move backward in this series, maybe not as a way to fill in more details, but as a way to kind of live in the world more before the, the ending point of the series, which definitely changes my own approach or how I was thinking about prequels, because for me, I just am thinking this is really kind of cynical. Well, endings are really scary, and I don't think we're in a culture that wants to think about endings really in most ways at all, unless you're ending somebody else. But ending your own self? Uh, no, thank you. So, I mean, again, uh, I think Tolkien himself, in a pretty famous interview, said that the main theme of The Lord of the Rings was death. And that's what the whole thing was about. That was how he, as the author, saw it, what he was writing about. Okay, so first of all, if it's death, it's hard to imagine a place to go beyond it. And second of all, endings have this force of kind of tamping down and fear. Uh, that I think most writers go out of their way to evade. So moving backwards in a franchise does come from, I think, nostalgia for the experience that you had while reading the book or viewing the property or doing the fan fiction franchise or whatever. You get this even in minuscule in fan fiction communities. This is all my sins coming out, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, the people who do the first powerful, long, extended, multi-novel fan fiction become canonical within that fan community. Absolutely. And everyone gestures towards them and then works around them. So there's a kind of almost fractal logic to the way um, the recession goes on. But... Then you get authors who, unlike J.K. Rowling, do change their little formula with every novel. And she did by the end of it. She blew Hogwarts to pieces. Um, so she, she also did experiment with that. 
But you get people like China Mieville who, who just don't write the same book ever, twice, always something completely different. Um, you get people like N.K. Jemison who just reinvent worlds with every time she comes back. There's uh, so many people who are sort of using fantasy non-nostalgically right now to talk about ends and futures and different different genders and, and uh, no genders and different time periods. Uh, it's such an exciting moment, and a lot of them are people of color. And I think the whole franchise go back to Tolkien thing is riding on fear of what the genre, the literary genre, is already becoming. You know, it's that level of nostalgia. Oh my God, our genre has been colonized. The Hugos have been have been dominated by by non-white people. What can we do? Let's go back and sell Tolkien in the prequels where there isn't any danger of that. And oh my God, they're betraying us there too. Yeah, and just to Tie that back to your earlier point, Kirsty, about having Lord of the Rings end in the age of men or, or humanity. Yeah, if, if we're thinking about Tolkien as being, or the Lord of the Rings series as being centered around death, then what does that leave the potential future for us as readers? If death is just going to be human death, there are no, and there are no Saurons, there are no external major forces that are kind of setting themselves in opposition to human life. So then it, 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 the fantasy completely dissolves at that point because then we're just left in, in the world right. with ourselves. Yeah. What, what is it about men? Mortal men doomed to die. <laughs> That's it. We die. That's it. Which also, I guess, goes to the question or the conversation we were having about, you know, why a prequel as opposed to, like, the next chapter is somehow the next, the story of Aragorn and his family. Well, it's kind of the same old. We know it's a king who lives and dies. And then he has a son who lives and dies. And it becomes less of a fantastic story because if we're thinking about this in terms of death, right, like, oh, it's more of an average mortality story. Okay, so this is your opportunity to, to tell me something. How does Game of Thrones actually capitalize on the future of death? Oh, that's a good question. Because that's the next big gigantic franchise, and it gets uh, it sells itself by saying this is for adults. Well, and I think part of how it sells itself as for adults is by, um, I mean, <laughs> really facing death head on in a way that Lord of the Rings does not. Like when you read the books, part of what is there, and when you watch the show, it's very graphic, right? Like the the deaths are vivid. You're not just getting like a death off screen. It's like we're going to describe to you how this dude's head's getting squeezed off and his eyeballs are yeah. like bursting. You know, it's yeah. it's gross. There's scenes I can't watch because of, you know, how how visceral they make the violence. Um, and that seems to be you know part of maybe the appeal. I think that as someone who's just kind of seen the fan communities, people respond to that positively because they think in some way, I, what I've heard is like, you know, oh, it's like the Middle Ages were violent. And so this show is just capturing the violence of the Middle Ages, right? It's, it's even though it's a fantasy, it's getting us at that same affect, that same feeling of, you know, brutish, violent and short, brutish, nasty and short of the Middle Ages as, as people have kind of described it. Um, you know, so I think that death, does get centered there, but then we also have so many characters who defy death or that question of, you know, resurrection or can you outlive a mortality? Um, you know, we see that with, you know, characters beyond the wall um, or with that. I know we're not really getting into Game of Thrones here, but, you know, there are a lot of characters who really emphasize that sort of um, possibility of immortality, right, or that possibility of a renewal of life. What I do think is quite different about Game of Thrones from 
Tolkien's world is that in Game of Thrones, I think the majority of the most impactful deaths are done at the hands of other human characters or other human characters wielding a tool, a magical tool like dragons. The, the, the dragons themselves seem to have no nefarious kind of agency of their own. They're, right. they're just used. Right. They're like um, almost like pets, right? It's like, oh, you can be an attack dog, but only because we've told you to attack. It's not like you yourself were going to go and kill those people. I like Ursula K. Le Guin's Wild Dragons much better. <laughs> the the adult part of Game of Thrones, but there's still going to be dragons. Like don't don't worry, the the fantasy will still be there. But the majority of the drama and the narrative kind of momentum is going to be done through human actors, as opposed to anything that is magical or otherworldly. To quote Ben Wyatt in Parks and Rec, he says they're telling human stories in a fantasy world, right? And so that's what we're seeing here, right? These these stories of human politics and intrigue and sex and violence, right, that are in this fantastic medieval-esque world that has magic. So Chris, a lot of what we've talked about already has kind of thought about Lord of the Rings as a war novel tied into questions of nationalism. And so let's think about, I guess, we can turn a little more to Rings of Power specifically, but also kind of Lord of the Rings in general. Um, Chris, when you watched Rings of Power, you know, as both a fan of the Lord of the Rings and as a scholar of the Middle Ages, did anything surprise you from this adaptation? You know, just kind of what you were saying for instance, with the Peter Jackson adaptation, that was such a great point that like, yes, the orcs in the books are not all necessarily coded black. Like there's, there is a racial diversity to the books that gets lost in adaptation. Um, so was there anything like that in Rings of Power that surprised you? Um, what do you make of the fan backlash against the inclusion of you know, more actors of color? And what do you think that says maybe about fandom generally or Lord of the Rings specifically? Because so much of our conversation has talked about it as a nationalist text, but I also want to emphasize that that's still pretty much a white nationalist text, right? It's if we're thinking of it as you know, this World War One post epic, right? It's still a very kind of European story. Well, uh, again, confession: uh, I have not finished watching Rings of Power. I've I'm still at number four, so I'm halfway through. Stalled, really well stalled. Is part of the reason that you you're holding off on finishing it, what we had talked about about prequels, where like you know where it's going to end. And so it becomes less <laughs> exciting to see how it ends because you're like, I know that Mount Doom is coming, for instance. <laughs> I know that the fall of Numenor is coming. I know that Mount Doom is coming. I know that there's a corrupting the rings sequence where the elves have to like grab them and hide. But I'm also just sick to death of fucking chisel-faced white elves. <laughs> what the freaking hell with the elvish cheekbones and jawbones? I mean, just... The way they were cast, uh, I'm talking about the white people, the, the, the people of color. Thank God for Princess Disa. I swear to God. You know, thank God for Princess Disa. Thank God for Arondir. They were great. Okay, so there's this critic I was looking up, again, as part of the prep for this. Uh, and her name is Kristen uh, J. Warner. And she talks about plastic representation. So plastic representation is when you just basically, and go read her if you want this. This is my bodlerization of it. Um, maybe there will be a link in the... Yeah, we could do that. Um, so plastic representation is where you basically sort of almost cynically put some black faces, 
Asian faces. Uh, you get uh, maybe one non-binary character. You stick them in non-important roles, and people are so happy to see anyone at all given the history of whatever franchise it is, that they don't think hard about whose stories are really being told. So the delight at finding those faces there sort of comes in as a sort of ersatz replacement for a fuller satisfaction of seeing a wider variety of life stories told. So if you notice that the, the Harfoots are mostly dark-skinned people, except for the one that we spent the most time with, Nori, who's this adorable little Irish accenty white person. Um, every single one of the elves who is powerful is white. Right, because one thing that we haven't um, discussed, and this does get very much into the weeds about the, the legendarium of the Tolkien universe, but right, Arondir as a sylvan elf is a low-class elf. The types of elves that Arondir are the one elf of color, it's like, you're the lowest class of elf that was not, that would have been ostracized by the fancy elves, right? Like the, the better elves. So um, even there, right, we have that. No, wouldn't it have been cool if Peter Jackson had used the same logic and made Legolas black? Made all of the Mirkwood elves? It's called Mirkwood. Come on. There's precedent. Mirk means dark. Let's have black elves in Mirkwood. That would have been really an interesting choice. It would have gestured at that class system. It would have made it more visible. But one single guy instead of maybe a whole culture doesn't do this. have the same force. And I think that that's a really... Great point. I'm, I'm definitely going to link to this, the plastic representation in the um, article description, because one thing that Misho and I were reading as we were getting ready for this interview um, was Jonathan Shu's anti-racist medievalisms. Mm -hmm. And the introduction to that, you know, talks about how people of color can and have, you know, kind of claimed medievalism for their own stories. Um, but Rings of Power is not doing that, right? It's not like, let's <laughs> take this and like, cast it through this experience. It's as you're saying, let's take these characters that will give them some agency, but, you know, Princess Disa versus Prince Doran, you know, if Prince Doran was made a black character, that would be a different level of, I guess, commitment of representation. I'm going to steal one more point that, that's going to further one of your own interests. Racial representation is not the only fail uh, that I think we get in Rings of Power. Uh, Verily Bitchy, mm -hmm. I did look for their real name, uh, but I could not find it. Their email is Verily Busy. Fabulous essay called uh, Tolkien Fucked Up First. Basically, I thought it was very, I thought it was fair. I, th I think it got the things he did well, and it uh, pinioned the things he did badly. And she focuses, she, they, focuses on uh, gender and how actually in Tolkien you've got a lot of gender play. Yes, it is not the biggest feminist book in the world at all, not even slightly. Uh, but the elves are more or less androgynous. The women are as tall as the guys. They're as strong as the guys. They have as big leadership as the guys. Um, and Galadriel is, of course, the finest example. And that's something that I thought Rings of Power did well. Galadriel should be a pretty scary, pretty rash, pretty interesting at an earlier moment of her journey mm -hmm. sort of presence. But why make her five foot two? I mean, she's not a hobbit. If you're going to tell the story of little people, and again, I'm just riffing off this video essay, she, uh, she, they, she actually gives both pronouns, um, says that uh, 
Tolkien, uh, if you want a formula for a Tolkien novel, you start with a little guy who makes their way progressively into a bigger and more epic world and leads you with them. And at the end, manages to change, change something about it for the better. That's the formula. That is not the formula that you get in Rings of Power. Everyone there is already always already powerful except the Harfoots, and they aren't making their way into a large world yet. We're just at the beginning of whatever journey they're doing. Um, so, and they're kind of aside from a lot of the other main plot points. You know, we just, you know, have lots of scary stuff in the Southlands and uh, do video game tunnel tunneling uh, against orcs there. And then we go off to Numenor and there's intrigue and whatnot. And then we have a little idol with the pastoral Irish Harfoots um, and, you know, whatever, and the stranger. But if you look at Tolkien, uh, he has Eowyn. Here's a woman who, who basically experiences patriarchal control in her own life, tries to replace her brother, uh, tries to abet the heir of the realm who's just been killed in a previous battle, and uh, gets squelched by everyone and then just goes into the battle in disguise and along with another underling does it anyway. Uh, you don't get that. In rings of power. The guys are hyper-masculine, the women are hyper-feminine, and it's really, really scary, actually, how they change and diminish the women and domesticate them. Diza should have a beard. So thank you, Verily Bitchy, for this brilliant video essay. Speaking as a personal young queer experience, like, I mean, Legolas was a big first crush of mine. I had a cardboard cut out of Legolas, and I was, you know, kind of pondering once I came out. I was like, why? And I was like, oh, because Legolas is a beautiful, very feminine-looking man, right? He has lovely long blonde hair. Like, that androgyny is, is lost in Rings of Power. I'm trying to think about where do we see similar androgynous elves. I'm not seeing them in the same way. As we're thinking about possibly teaching Lord of the Rings or teaching Rings of Power, I was wondering, where do you think Rings of Power succeeds or falls short kind of as this, um, as an epic fantasy in general? And how would you include it, or would you include it, in a syllabus for a course on global medievalisms, for instance? So I haven't taught a course on global medievalisms. I've taught courses on medievalisms, and I've taught courses on global. So I was trying to prepare for this question, and I was kind of coming up blank. Because there are lots and lots of people, say, translating and riffing on Chaucer that I know about thanks to the amazing uh, sort of global Chaucer website of my friend Candace Barrington and Jonathan Shu. Um, and uh, the work they've done to basically show the globality of Chaucer studies is really cool. If I think about texts I would consider global, but also middle period, and I don't want to use the word medieval for them because it is, it has such a, a sort of Latinate, this is Europe, sense of things. Um, so middle period is one bad <laughs> kind of workaround. I think about the Thousand and One Nights and the way that has traveled and changed. I think about several of the tales that eventually, that originated in India and eventually made their way all over the world, sometimes in, by, you know, to kind of taken by colonialists as part of their 
European indoctrination programs and then seized and translated into indigenous languages. Uh, so for instance, there's a story uh, that's called The Scholarly Slave Girl or uh, Abdul Hazen and his uh, slave girl Tawadud in The Thousand and One Nights. It also circulates separately. And it ends up translated into Castilian Spanish in the, in the 13th century, and then it's printed up in the 16th century when books become big. And then it's, import, it's exported on, in crates to uh, the Yucatan Peninsula by the conquistadors. And it's used to indoctrinate um, Maya culture uh, and uh, show them what Christianity should be after it's been Islamized and changed, uh, uh, de-Islamized and changed um, in translation. And then you, you get Maya translations of it in three community books, which are secret books that the Maya use to sort of, okay, so these are what, this is what the colonialists are telling us. This is what we can use to make sense of them, to basically find our own footing. And uh, very interesting hybrid texts about basically finding leverage mm -hmm. against um, what's called uh, colonial reduction. And uh, so you get these tales that travel globally all over the place. I would love to have uh, a, a course where I sort of teach them as medievalism, but it's hard to separate them from medieval because there's such a... So I, I guess I run up short against what is medieval and what is medievalism mm -hmm. and where do you draw the line if you're looking at a version of the text that's been translated four times and has ended up in 18th or 19th century Brazil mm -hmm. in Portuguese you know, um, right. which is something that happened to the story of Tawadud becomes Tanzela, Theodore, and whatnot. And I'm talking to a group of scholars who are, who are scholars in Maya, who are scholars in Castilian, who are scholars in expertises that I don't know anything about and can't presume to, but we're, we're just basically talking together about the global progression of these stories. And it's really, really exciting. But is it medievalism in the sense of I'm making a fantasy novel about this particular thing or this particular issue or I just want to do the Wars of the Roses and how nasty and brutish and short they really were um, or, or it's so where would you put medievalism I wouldn't put okay I would not teach Rings of Power in a global medievalism course because it's European and it, it at least in terms of its base texts and it's um Amazon can claim to be the world but I'm not buying it and I want to I want to basically subvert that wherever I can. Yeah, I think this discussion really hits at how imprecise global is in terms of talking about a lot of the trends that's happening right now among medievalists. So global medievalisms, I think you can take that in a, in a couple of different ways. One way might be to, if we're thinking about rings of power, use a term like multicultural. Even that feels like rings of power fall short <laughs> in, it, in that promise. But having a, a different word because again this is Tolkien's worlds uh, Tolkien's worlds these are worlds that are rooted in European history and have been adopted by fans as being kind of indicative of a European past that could have been or might have been potentially um, so I, I am struggling a little bit, actually more with the word global than with the word medievalisms here. Mm -hmm. um, we have a really wonderful colleague, Stephanie Madabang, who studies how the, the Middle Ages and what we think of as being like the European Middle Ages, um, she studies how that 
has turned into a form of sort of historical discussion in the Philippines. And so this is a, a place outside of Europe that's using the European Middle Ages as a source for, uh, as a productive thought experiment, a, a way to kind of think about um, processes of colonialism and and a kind of globality and interconnectedness. And, and so I think that that could be a potential way to teach global medievalisms. How do the European Middle Ages get imagined and deployed outside of Anglophone cultures or regions? And I think another way to, would be to look at how the pre-modern past is fantasized in different places around the world. The, the, the example that you brought up, Chris, is so dynamic and illustrative. I think another really analogous one would be the story of Son Goku or the, the Monkey King in China. So the, that story, I think, originated in India as well. And, and that's one that has circulated in or across the Asian continent and has a lot of continued purchase, cultural purchase, um, and continues to be a source of reimagining something like Dragon Ball Z, rooted in that sort of medieval imaginary. So there, there are ways to talk about medievalisms, looking at a pre-modern past roughly within the same time period of 500 to 1500-ish, without it being just solely centering European stories. But that, that does require a little bit of careful framing, I think. Speaking of teaching, <laughs> that, that was a little bit of a digression. But um, I, with our last question, I wanted to introduce another medievalism, another recent adaptation of a medieval text that I think would be a great point for us to end, and that's The Green Knight. Chris, have you seen that? I um, have, and I loved it. When I've taught this in the past, students have really responded to the, the casting choices first. I think it, that's probably the most obvious thing, and so they're immediately challenged with their assumption of what the Middle Ages should look like. I'm using air quotes, uh, podcast, you can't see it. But <laughs> yeah, the, I think a lot of times, especially for first year students or students who are not particularly interested in the Middle Ages, but are maybe taking a requirement course, they don't really have a clear sense of the, the period, the historical period, um, uh, particularly in Europe, because it has such a, a strong mythology or mythos around it that there's a really popular imaginary, and that doesn't really reflect the reality. So when students see something like the Green Knight, it's an immediate challenge and it opens up new possibilities for identification, for disidentification, for thinking about the medieval texts that we are also encountering alongside the film, how they might be engaged in conversations around um, kind of concretizing who gets included in a group, who gets excluded. Um, so I, th I thought it was really wonderful in that way, just to open up new ways of thinking about the medieval. It makes it a little bit more alive to students, I think. Okay, so to the question, Chris, do you think Rings of Power and the Green Knight are in dialogue with one another culturally somehow? Why, why are we getting these um, more diverse reimaginings of medieval worlds right now? Again, really great question. Um, I had a very different reaction to Green Knight. It was puzzling. It was experimental. I don't want to make that a high new class distinction between, oh, it's complex. We validate this better than we like the simple sort of black-white schemas. I mean, I don't want to do that, but I kind of find myself doing it because, hey, the academy. Um, so to some extent, it's differently marketed. Uh, it's an art house uh, deliberately, whereas it's experimentalism on its face. Um, it has no predecessor. I mean, you could count sort of the valiant if you really kind of wrenched it with us but it's really the first wholesale representation mediatized representation re-representation of uh sir gawain and the green knight 
uh, and it could it basically went in whole hog at its cultural moment and it just did it and it did it in a really interesting way um, and I do see the racial uh, sort of it's non-plastic representation because Gawain remains an outsider and um, the outsiderness is complexly uh, kind of geared through both race and species. The Green Knight is this vegetal, wooden, creaky thing. Um, it's hard to classify as human. It looks more like a puppet. Um, and when you think about how the thing ended, without any spoilers to those of you who haven't seen it, you should go out and see it. Um, it seemed to me about masculinity and its bad choices, given bad parenting, both from um, absolutely impenetrable mothers and terrifying, you will, I'm going back on war again, you will inherit the masculine legacy of war. Either you are a soldier and will give yourself up to die, or you are a coward and will not rate as anyone that matters. And it does it all at once. Um, and it does it as kind of exfoliating the bad bargain that patriarchy offers to those who are both racially inside and racially less inside a particular system. Uh, it does it by basically say, sh saying, look, you play by the rules of the system and you get validated. You get the girl. You can basically be the sexual aggressor. I think that's why the St. Winifred scene, how dare you presume that you can even touch me? That moment in there puts a full stop um, to a lot of the a lot of the kind of uh, assumption uh, assumption of entitlement that Gawain is trying to short circuit his way around in the course of the film. But in the end, it's just this horrible bargain of bad choices: be a coward or die. Be a coward or die. Oh, you choose death. Fine. That's so interesting because I, I think I do have a different reading of it, and, and it might be a little overemphasizing the racial dynamics of it, but I, I'm kind of, and I'm sure as we all are, as people who teach medieval texts regularly, Lon Ball is sort of the text that comes to mind as the one that is about outsiderness among the knights. Um, Absolutely. And, and what was so visually striking to me about the, the Christmas scene in The Green Knight is how much visually Dev Patel's character Gawain is kind of segregated and isolated and shown to be outside of the the rest of the community. All the other knights around the the round table are sort of laughing with one another, and he's separated. And he only gets called forward by the king when there's an absence, when <laughs> Lancelot is notably not there. And the the king sort of looks around for a moment, King Arthur, and realizes, oh, I guess we can we can have. Uh, Gawain comes sit with us in this moment, and it, it's sort of this sort of secondhand afterthought. And to me, that is so striking that it it really dramatizes how much of an outsider Gawain is in the court, and how much he has to, or how much he feels he has to prove himself. And I see that as being, in a lot of ways, racially motivated, the, as the one man of color. In, in a That's room great. Of white That's great, and that really undoes the idea of the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. Basically, it raises real questions about sort of who get to be the heroes and how do they get to be the heroes. And, you know, I mean, wouldn't it be nice if Rings of Power thought through that? 
a little bit also. I mean, a lot of people were pissed off at Galadriel because she was such a stereotypical male hero. One thing that I've been thinking about in this discussion is how the adaptation of The Green Knight really does a lot of imaginative play with the source material. You know, one thing that struck me when I watched it was how much seemed brand new from not in the romance, right? And at first I wasn't sure. I'm like, is this a question of fidelity to the original text, right? Kind of how I've talked about here. I'm like, is that influence the adaptation? Um, I think what it does really well is it kind of engages in some of that fan fiction play that we've described in, in terms of imagining what the text possibly means when it says, you know, Gawain had adventures on his journey to find the Green Knight. And the film, Green Knight, gives us, you know, the Saint Winifred, gives us a lot of these um, episodes, the the kind of giants fighting, right, that we don't get in oh, the Oh, the romance. giant scene was freaking brilliant, right? Yeah. We get these, like, really beautiful and intense scenes that aren't in the romance necessarily, but are, you know, perhaps hinted at in that text. Um, and maybe that's part of what makes this movie adaptation kind of a, a successful adaptation in a way that Rings of Power doesn't, is that it does engage in this imaginative play um, that allows us to not just have plastic representation, but to say, let's take this seriously. And let's say, what happens if we have Morgan Le Fay, the king's half-sister, and cast her as a, you know, a woman of color? What happens when we have Gawain and say, let's actually add this racial dynamic to the larger question of being an insider or an outsider at King Arthur's court? Um, and one thing that I think the question or the point that you both were just discussing, which is, you know, who gets to be a hero um, or kind of how does that work? That's one thing that I think the Green Knight carries through really well from Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the original romance. Because part of the romance question really is, you know, Arthur and Camelot, you all claim to be a hotshot big deal. And yet you all are not even answering the challenge. It's your kind of feckless nephew who's dealing with this on your behalf. Um, while in the in the movie, right, we're getting that sort of same, oh, King Arthur, are you really a great king? <laughs> it seems like you're actually a pretty crappy ruler and uncle. Yeah, I, I guess the, the last couple of things I'll say about The Green Knight, I could talk about this film for a while, but I'll, I'll limit it. I think what was really clever on the filmmaker's part was drawing from the mythology of the founding of England, even, to, to kind of make up the world and constitute the world of the film and to also use that mythology as a way to comment on racial politics in the post-colonial British Empire setting. Um, so the, the Giants, I thought, was a brilliant way to reference that because the story of the founding of England, Brutus of Troy, kills the Giants who are indigenous to the land. And we see that same sort of migration happening of the Giants leaving um, just as uh, the, I guess, Gawain's own incursions into the land further sort of signal a deepening relationship of, of the settlers to this space. Um, at the same time, it's hard to watch that film and watch a British Indian actor without being reminded of the colonial legacies of England in the 18th and 19th centuries and beyond. Um, and, and to have both of those histories and mythologies being woven together and having that, that tapestry actually produce a, a clear commentary about race and medievalism, I think that is what these kinds of adaptations ideally would do. I do not think that's what Rings of Power does, <laughs> unfortunately. But I, I think to, to kind of counteract Rings of Power, we do have examples of how that can be successfully done. That's really great. I think that when I was preparing for this episode, I had maybe imagined without thinking critically that, like, yeah, they're probably in conversation with each other. They're both recent IPs that have come out with, you know, adaptations 
in the past five years, sure. Um, but what you and Chris have really shown me in this conversation is like, no, they're really very different aims in these adaptations. And they're telling very different types of stories. And they're very different, um, differently invested in kind of the stakes of identity, for instance, in each of their narratives. Guys, thank you so much. This takes us just about out of time, but wow, this has been a really exciting conversation and I've learned so much from talking to you guys. Um, Chris, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise with us. Misha, thank you for being the best co-host ever. So grateful. I also want to say a huge thanks to the Multicultural Middle Ages podcast team, the Medieval Academy of America Graduate Student Committee, and everybody listening for supporting this episode and the important work of this podcast. Please, like, I hope that this conversation has inspired you to kind of go forth and challenge narratives of nationalism and to reinterpret fantasy on your own. Thanks so much for joining us. This has been an episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages, an anthology-style podcast series brought to you by the Graduate Student Committee of the Medieval Academy of America. Season 2 was produced by Will Beatty, Jonathan Correa-Reyes, Reed O'Mara, and Logan Quigley. Music is by Anna O'Connell. <laughs>